Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm David Ross, and welcome to episode 15 of The Sun's Israel's War on Terror podcast. The Hamas terror massacre of October the 7th, 2023, was the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust, but it's just the latest in a long line of significant incidents. What can the lessons of the past teach us in terms of how to deal with the present? On June 27, 1976, Air France Flight 139 left Tel Aviv for Paris, carrying 246 mainly Jewish and Israeli passengers. The plane made a stop in Athens, where it picked up another 58 people. Shortly after takeoff, it was hijacked, and the flight was diverted first to Libya and then Entebbe Airport in Uganda. After a tense few days, Israel launched an audacious and ultimately successful rescue operation that is considered today to be one of the greatest counter-terror operations of all time. Penny Davidson was one of the hostages. He was just 13 at the time. Tell me what you remember about how the 27th of June 1976 unfolded. Well, it started great. Uh, we drove in the morning to Ben Gurion Airport. Both my parents, mother and father, who are currently 89, God bless them, and my older brother Ron to the airport. For, for Ron and for me, it was the first time actually to fly outside of Israel. I was 13, my brother was 17 at the time. We were supposed to board an Air France flight flying uh, to Paris and then exchange planes and continue with the flight to New York and then rent a car and for a whole month uh, spend a coast-to-coast -coast trip in the U.S. That was a uh, bar mitzvah present for myself and prior to joining the army present for my older brother Ron. We didn't know about the, uh, the layover in Athens. Nevertheless, we landed in Athens and it was like uh, 30 minutes or an hour break. And I remember that my father and my brother and myself stepped out to the uh, steps on the back door, taking a look out on beautiful uh, Athens. Uh, I remember I was trying to uh, locate the Acropolis. And then after half an hour or so, uh, they called us back. We sat in uh, four middle seats, roughly towards the back of the airplane, the, the end of the airplane galley. And... Several minutes after takeoff, we heard a high-pitched shrill or yell uh, from the uh, front, from the business class. My mother immediately looked at my father, put the hand on his knee and said, we're being hijacked. My father told her, listen, Sarah, you're afraid of flights and everything, so probably somebody doesn't feel well and it will sort out in a few minutes. But regretfully, she was right. And a few seconds later, we saw uh, a French stewardess walking back from business class towards our class, towards our coach class on the left aisle to be followed by a German woman terrorist holding a gun to her head and waving a grenade uh, in another hand. At the same time, two 
Arab terrorists that were, you know, Arabs that boarded the plane in Athens, just passengers like us, jumped out of their seats. They were sitting uh, two rows behind us on the aisles seats, and they jumped and started running back and forth, uh, waving guns and grenades and shouting, this airplane is hijacked. I assume you've been to flights many times, so you can imagine uh, how all hell breaks loose in, in, in such horrific minutes. Uh, <clears throat> the blood runs out of your veins, you feel cold, and, and there were lots of shouting and yelling and, cry, and, and crying. But I have to admit that what cemented, what was cemented in me in those initial, possibly horrific minutes, were three things that are escorting me ever since and came in very handy uh, in my life. The first one was that while the terrorists were running around and waving guns, my father, who sat on the right aisle, took a brief look to the left towards my mother, myself, and my brother, who sat on the left aisle and told us very quietly, no panicking, no shouting, please move forward a little bit in your seats and sit lower. So if there is a stray bullet, you're not getting hit. A very short command with no hysteria telling us what to do. And to me, that's cemented as, as taking control of a situation that is very, very chaotic. The second thing was that after several minutes, our new captain, the German terrorist, ordered everybody to uh, collect their uh, flight tickets and passports and any document for his comrades to take. And my father, being the father of the family, held all documents with him. So he prepared it in a, in a small nylon bag and he found in his wallet his Air Force entry base pass that was with him. My father was a captain in the Israeli Air Force, an active combat navigator. And that's a piece of information you don't want terrorists to know. So instead, again, panicking and becoming hysterical, he simply uh, tore it to four pieces while the terrorists are roaming the aisles back and forth, gave each one of our family members a quarter of this small card. Thankfully enough, it was not made of plastic back in the 70s, but of carton. And we continued to tear it apart to small pieces, putting it uh, in our mouths and, and, and turning it into small paper balls and throwing it in a soft drink can in the city in front of us. And within a couple of minutes, we were culprits, so to speak, but hiding real evidence about a colonel in the Israeli Air Force. My mother opened her purse and found three things, items that her mother gave her just when we said goodbye in Ben Gurion Airport, and one of them was value pills. And until today, 47 years thereafter, my mother cannot explain why her mother gave her value pills for a trip to the U.S. But nevertheless, without thinking again, uh, my mother gave me a value, and my mo and my older brother and herself, she offered one for my father. You can imagine that he declined. But those small gestures and, and decisions that were made in the blink of a second were cemented in me in, in, in a way that even if you're getting hijacked and you fear for your life in those initial tragic moments, you can still take some control of, of what's going on. And that pattern continued through the whole of that week.
But when did you get a sense that you were going to be taken to Uganda, that Jewish hostages and non-Jewish hostages were going to be separated? How did those events play out? So we landed in, on Monday, early morning, actually very, very late at night, like 4 a.m. in the morning, I think, in, in uh, Entebbe. We did not know. Let's remember, the plane was hijacked after takeoff from Athens. That was roughly around 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning. They told us to close the shutters, and we tried to figure out where they're taking us. And only after landing in Libya, in Benghazi airport, and the airplane was surrounded by the Libyan army, that we understood that we're now in Libya, in Muammar Gaddafi's backyard. And it was, you know, quite frightening because Libya still today does not have any relations uh, with Israel. Then after an hour or so, uh, we took off again. And, you know, I'm jumping the parts that you need to go to the bathroom and you need uh, and you have a terrorist escorting you from your seat to the toilet with the gun in the back of your head, waiting for you outside and then escorting you back to your seat. So there were lots of horrors during that flight, but uh, we did not know that we we're in Benghazi only after landing. And certainly after takeoff, we did not know where they're taking us. They didn't tell us. And my father being a navigator, knowing the Airbus and fuel capacity and speed and so on and so forth, tried to calculate when can, where can we go? I can tell you that he forecasted even going to China, but no one estimated or forecasted that we're uh, going to Middle Africa, to Uganda, and to Entebbe. We landed there on Monday early morning with the shutters closed, and then after a couple of hours, and remember, we're sitting in that same airplane from Sunday morning, so more than 24 hours we're sitting within the airplane, the, uh, they allowed us to open the shutters, and then we and then we saw the old terminal of Entebbe. And and you know, us Israelis, we're always optimistic, so we had a relief. We said, okay, they brought us here to Uganda, and we remember that Idi Amin and the government of Israel had good relation in the 60s, and probably there is some kind of a deal in the making. And we will disembark and we'll get some couple of biscuits and juices and, and we will be sent off. We were wrong because when we started disembarking the airplane, we were walked between two rows of Ugandan soldiers armed head to toe. And that was not an honor guard. And when we saw the terrorists hugging other terrorists waiting for them on the ground and Idi Amin and his soldiers exchanging handshakes and hugs, and, 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 and blessings, we took it for what it's worth, that we're 4,000 kilometers away from Israel and we are under the, the gods of, of 10 terrorists, over 100 Ugandan soldiers, and one lunatic dictator in the name of uh, Idi Amin. The following day, they, they, they uh, collected all the passports in the airplane, as you remember, and then uh, they said, we're going to start reading names and whomever we are, is being called, take your belongings and go to the other side of the uh, wall. Two armed soldiers broke an opening in the wall, and we saw that there is another room, an adjacent room. Again, being optimistic, because we're 250 passengers and crew in a very crowded and filthy old terminal, we thought that they're making our lives a little easier by, you know, sending some of us offloading the congestion, so to speak, uh, to the other room. 
by the third name we understood. Just looking, and you know, I was 13, so I knew all about the Holocaust. Just looking at my parents and the other adults' faces, uh, we knew that the selection is being made again. And we're in 1976, 30-odd-some years after 1944. And another selection is being made, and a selection is being made by a German terrorists, two German terrorists. No other, no, the Arabs did not call the name, nor the Ugandans. Only the female and male terrorists, German terrorists, called the names, and it was quite a shock for the Israelis. And even those who resemble, to some extent, Jewish people were selected to move to the other uh, side. Uh, but, you know, those are very hard moments. But at the same time, like in the airplane, also on the ground, my parents enacted me and Ron as the same as the other parents of the children of Entebbe with routines on an hourly basis, like building the library or, or playing backgammon or chess or reading books or, or, or talking or whatever. Those daily routines, waking up in the morning, uh, brushing your teeth, eating breakfast, washing the dishes, changing books with other passengers, talking with them about the books, getting to know others. It's horrific. The situation is horrific. But, and, and let's remember, we're not in the tunnels of Hamas, and I'm sure we'll get to that later. But the situation is, is unimaginable on one hand. And our parents enacted us in, in such a routine daily chores way that made it sort of speak possible or, or possible. And I think that attributed a lot to my ability uh, to survive that, mainly mentally, and not getting scarred or, or traumatized. What did you imagine was going on on the ground in Israel? What was your, you and your family's knowledge of how the Mossad and the IDF and those kind of organizations operate in, in this kind of situation? And how conscious were you, how much belief did you have that some kind of rescue attempt would be made? Let's remember, David, we're in 1976, back in the 70s. No satellites, no internet, no iPhones, no real intelligence, except for human, human intelligence. We didn't know anything about what's going on in Israel. Every time the... Uh, Idi Amin came with his entourage and the Ugandan TV. Uh, some of the hostages moved forward into the frame, assuming that the frame will catch them and those broadcasts will go somehow back into Europe, Israel, the US, and in such a way that our families will get a hint that we're alive. Any estimation about a military operation was shut down immediately by my father, who knew the Air Force very well, and said, the Israeli Air Force does not have airplanes that can reach here and come back to Israel, and there is no refueling point nearby that can enable such an operation. Hence, no viable operation is possible. Idi Amin, on the second or third day, demanded us to write a letter, us the hostages, to write a letter to the government of Israel demanding the release of those 53, uh, they call them freedom fighters, we all call them terrorists, 
and the payment of $5 million, which was the ransom. Th those were the, their demands. And I remember as a 13-year-old boy, a very harsh deliberation, even in, in, in shouts at some points, between the Israeli hostages, including my parents, whether it is right for us as hostages to make such a demand without knowing the whole picture and what's going on in Israel and worldwide. Eventually, uh, the vote was yay and not nay, but, my but both my parents voted against. And that was quite an important lesson for me as a 13-year-old boy that even though my parents and my older brother and myself are in the danger of being slaughtered. Let's remember the deadline was for Thursday noontime. Even though our lives are at stake, my parents were not willing to push the government to enter negotiations with terrorists and address their demands. Those were the days in the 70s with the leadership and my parents, although it might have saved my life, they didn't know about the operation coming and the Mossad working behind the scenes and everything, thought that the principles of Zionism, of Zionism and Judaism and integrity and moral, that all Israel, all Israel are friends with one another and all Israel are vouching for one another, are more important and they rely on the, leader, the leadership, even though my father said no military operation is possible, rather than to write such a letter. Such a letter was never sent at the end of the day, but, but that was a very hard lesson cemented in me at age 13. Fast forward to Saturday noontime, I sat and played Benjamin with a friend of mine, Kima Laksel. He was older than me and he was on his way to the Olympic Games in Montreal. I threw the dice and he threw the dice and we exchanged some talks and things like that. And all of a sudden I said to him, you'll see Akiba. Tonight at midnight, the IDF will come. Just like an enlightenment, so to speak. Like a bulb went out on my head. And Akiba stopped the game, put a hand on my forehead. He thought I'm hallucinating and having fever because this interior pro uh, 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 broke out earlier the day before and my brother was having a high fever. And he thought that I caught it as well and, and starting hallucinating and imagining things about the IDF. And he told me, listen, your father said that the IDF cannot come. I told him, listen, with all due respect to my father, you'll see tonight at midnight they will come. But up until that moment, I hadn't even thought about the possibility and simply relied on the grown-ups that said there is no solution. Let's remember that on Thursday, 11 o'clock in the morning, one hour before the deadline expires, and two of us are selected to get murdered, Idi Amin came in and told us that the government of Israel decided to enter negotiations with the Palestinians, with the terrorists, and hence they are delaying the deadline from Thursday noontime to Sunday, to the following Sunday at noontime. One may ask how come the late Rabin, Mr. Rabin, who was the prime minister at the time, decided to change a policy that prevailed since the inception of Israel. Because David Ben-Gurion 
the first prime minister of Israel, uh, uh, enacted a policy that we are not, Israel is not talking or negotiating with terrorists. And that lasted until 1976. And all of a sudden, Mr. Rabin decided to change uh, such a long-time policy. And since I started uh, lecturing about my personal experience and the resilience and how to survive a terror event, I talked to many officials, both in the army and in the government, that were uh, in action at the time. And I was told that it was twofold. One, the military operation until Wednesday or early morning uh, uh, Thursday was not a real viable solution. And hence, Mr. Rabin, being the leader that he was, took a very brave decision, told the uh, Mr. Begin, who was the head of the opposition, this is what I'm going to do, please support us, because we have no other way. And we all know what transpired on Saturday night. So what is your most clear memory of the second you knew that a military operation was happening? The second I knew that something is happening was the initial shots. The experience that cemented... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That is cemented in me for the last 47 and a half years is that uh, uh, a tower of glass bottles is crashing to the ground. But my parents, again, being very brave and very sharp, took it for what it is and took us to the toilets nearby that were shielded to some extent from a direct line of fire coming from the outside. We did not know that these, these are the IDF soldiers. I did not remember my prophecy from that day at noontime, and we thought that we we're getting slaughtered. So I find myself lying on the ground with my mother uh, covering me with her uh, body, my brother and uh, father roughly at the same position with other hostages who fled to the toilets uh, area, and all hell broke loose, and there were shots of guns and submachine guns and machine guns and grenades and RPGs and whatever for long minutes. And I was lying on the ground facing down and saying, with personal addition of myself, God, please save us. Don't let us die. I didn't know, we didn't know that those are Israelis. And after several minutes of a very hard fight in the terminal and outside of the terminal, Somebody shouted, hey, there are Israeli soldiers here. And the uh, shots 
In the terminal stop, they continued the fight outside, but in the terminal, the, stop, the shots stopped and we raised our head. You know, we we're lying on the ground, looking up to the soldiers standing, and we saw a couple of soldiers, uh, Amir Ofer and Amos Goren, were the first two soldiers of commando unit uh, led by Yoni Netanyahu, who uh, came to the back of the terminal after eliminating the terrorists and looked us down at us, smiling and saying, hey, we came to take you home. Take your belongings, go outside. Our little soldiers are waiting for you and we'll take you to an airplane that will fly you back home. As simple as that. And there, you know, there, there, there are many stories and anecdotes of, of during the fight and, and the fight that was outside of the tarmac while we ran into the Hercules uh, and they blew up the MiGs. I can go for hours, but we don't have time for that. So how did you feel when you started to gain confidence that you were indeed safe, that you had been rescued? Immediately when we saw the soldiers, I, I was not shaking, I was not yelling, I was not crying. The whole four of us ran on the tarmac for like 500 or 600 meters uh, with two Golani soldiers, one on the right, one on the left, escorting us until we saw the high tail in the dark night of uh, Entebbe of the C-130. I don't know how, but I felt safe. Even when we landed in uh, Nairobi and, 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 and then my father, who actually the, the, the captain of our Hercules was in the same uh, squadron of his. So he came down when we landed in Nairobi and, and uh, looked up my father and said, are you okay? Is your family okay? So, you know, there's such a small circles that all Israelis know one another to some extent. So imagine that the captain of RC-130 who rescued us was a squad member of my father from the Israeli Air Force, and they met in Nairobi uh, for the refueling. And my father was right, but he didn't know that the Mossad had an office in Kenya, in Nairobi, to enable such uh, 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 the ability to refuel the Hercules is the C-130s and fly back to Israel. And again, the flight back to Israel was was a very dangerous one. My father knew that it's a very, very long and very dangerous flight because we're flying near Yemen and near Saudi Arabia and near Egypt and near Ethiopia. All of them are were fierce enemies of Israel. And he was standing near the uh, small window on on the side door of, uh, of the C-130 where the paratroopers usually jump out. There is a small circle window. It was just looking for the whole of the flight. I sat with my mother and uh, my brother, uh, but I saw that he was standing. So at some point of time, when we got uh, closer to Israel and daylight broke, I stood up and asked him, what are you looking for? He answered with one word, phantoms, F4s. My father knew the risk of the flight and he knew that as soon as we get closer enough to the state of Israel, the Israeli Air Force F-4s will escort us. And once we saw them, and I saw them with him, as soon as they sat on our wings, on our right and left, only then he was willing to sit down and be confident that, okay, they've got our tail, we're closer, we're closer to the borders of Israel, and, and it's okay. You touch down and the days pass and the weeks pass. When did you begin to appreciate the detail of the audacity of this rescue and the planning and the execution. Again, my parents, we uh, landed in Israel on July 4th, Sunday. On July 14th, 10 days later, 
we took off again in an Elal direct flight to New York and for a whole month, spent the same coast-to-coast gift trip for me and for my brother to the leather. And I always say in my, le- in my lecture that I'm not a terror, anti, anti-terror specialist. I'm not a military specialist, but the best akamol against terror is to go back immediately as you can to your routines and to your original plans and continue with life. And that's what happened to the four of us. And of course, you know, there are many parties and celebrations and ceremonies uh, that we took part of, but I didn't dive into the details of the operation and the bravery and and the skills of the IDF and the leadership of our brave leadership then, only after 40 years, when I started lecturing about my experience, I decided that it's not enough for me to bring the details from the terminal of Santebe as a hostage, but I want to bring the other side, what happened in Israel during that time. So I learned each and every piece of information, and I'm quite knowledgeable about what happened here uh, during, here I mean in Israel, during that week that we spent uh, there. We had lots of luck, I have to admit. You know, uh, one of the pilots, when they landed in Israel, was interviewed by Mr. Rabin, and uh, Mr. Rabin asked him, how was it? Was it according to plan? And Shiki Shani, who was the captain of the squadron leader of the first airplane, told him, well, Mr. Prime Minister, God works, God worked extra hours during that operation. We had a lot of luck and it was a very daring and courageous operation that, you know, you need a very strong leadership and government to take such a brave, some would call it crazy decision. The commander of the rescue mission, Yoni Netanyahu, tragically lost his life. Benjamin Netanyahu is the current leader of Israel. How much do you think his worldview of the Middle East and his view of terrorism was shaped by what happened to Yoni? Well, Yoni was a scar for me personally for many years. I felt guilty uh, as if almost on a personal level that Israel lost a great leader because of me, because of us. And I felt so ashamed that it took me 40 years to go to Mount Herzl to his memorial service. And on the 40th anniversary, I went there and spoke on behalf of the hostages. Now, I have my theories on Bibi. I know Bibi very well. I met him in person several times following the... uh, memorial services of uh, Yoni. Uh, I know his father, his late father, Ben Sion Netanyahu, who was a professor, a historical uh, history professor. Uh, They were were brought up in a very right, uh, I would say, wing uh, home. And I think at the initial days or years following Yoni's uh, death, let's remember, uh, Bibi was living in the United States at the time, in 1976. He left Israel. His name was Benjamin Nittai. 
and he was following a career in the United States. He didn't plan to come back to Israel. Following Yoni's death, uh, he came back to Israel and joined politics. And I think that at the initial years, being uh, an ambassador in the UN, uh, he had been doing a very good job. Bibi is a great marketing guy, one of the experts. But if I need to allude to the days that we're uh, having now, and, 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 and I cannot regretfully escape because following the Black Saturday, a lot of change, both in Israel, both in the region, as well as worldwide. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that this uh, messiah, extreme right-wing government lost any trust by the people of Israel. You all know about the protests that were made during the judicial coup, who, which we managed to stop. Regretfully, we didn't manage to overflow this government before the Black Saturday. And what runs my blood hot is the actions of this government following the Black Saturday led by Benjamin Netanyahu. His brother took his commando forces amongst with 220 fighters to an operation that was really a crazy operation. But they followed a simple theme or, or, or subject, which is caring for any Jews or Israeli that are caught captive anywhere in the world, even with uh, sacrificing their lives. And he only fell on those principles of Judaism, Zionism, integrity, and moral of caring for his fellow Israeli people. Regretfully, I have to say, Bibi is doing exactly the other way around. That's what's happening in these days. The government went into a war, a very just war, with Hamas, who needs to be eradicated because anybody who raises a hand, not to say, performs horrific crimes against humanity to our people or to any people around the world, does not deserve to breathe the air on this world. But if we thought initially that our brave army could eliminate Hamas within a, you know, a couple of months or so, that would be fine with me. But we're three and a half months into this battle. We are reducing forces in Gaza. We are losing uh, support from decent Western world. And simply because the government is not willing to discuss the day after on one hand and is not doing the utmost ultimate sacred task and it's to save the 136 hostages. So we are in a deep crisis, not just in a military level, but we're in a deep crisis internally. And the, the crisis is not as it may be portrayed outside of Israel between right and left. This is simply not true. The people of Israel and the IDF are united. We are divided from the policymakers, from Bibi and his government. And that's why we need to replace them immediately. Otherwise, 
I do not foresee an exit plan that is viable, that will restore Israel's strength and ability to uh, defend any future attacks. Such horrific Saturday needs to be answered very, very odd and very, very strong, but only after we save the hostages. And the talks within the government officials about conquering Gaza and resettling Gaza and kicking two and a half billion Palestinians to Egypt or Saudi Arabia or whatever that are mentioned in the Hague Court of Justice, you know, they're quoting our ministers as 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 talking nonsense, as 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 sort of a, a, an affidavit or a testimonial to what Israel is aiming to do. The people of Israel does not support that. Yes, they won the, the elections in November, the year before the last, rightfully so, but they generated a government of lunatics who is driving Israel into the fall of the third house. As simple as that. So people can mask that with politics and right and left and, and, and religious and seculars and anti-Semite or not. But this is all fog to me and to many others. We need to have a solution. And by the way, I never voted. I'm 60 now. I never voted to Mr. Rabin or Mr. Peres or any of those uh, 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 parties. So no one can uh, uh, call me a leftist or, or, or an Arab uh, 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 affection. I'm a terror victim, right? So I'm 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 a liberal. I'm 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 right wing by 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 my home and my uh, uh, conceptions. But uh, I'm also a man of reality. And this government cannot eradicate Hamas. Cannot intimidate Hezbollah or Iran without losing our 136 civilians there. This government does not have the trust and support of the people of Israel, period. As simple as that. And we are in a sort of a deadlock, and that's why when you see people out in the streets, hundreds or thousands of them, during the war, I would have voted to do that right at the outset. But, you know, people needed to absorb and, 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 and realize what's going on and, and mourn, you know, just last night, we had 21 new fallen soldiers in a horrific situation in, in Anunis. And, and, and soldiers are falling each and every day, and hostages are dying each and every day. And, and, and I don't see this government stating a policy that I can support and say, okay, that makes sense. Let them do that and then go to elections. Because Bibi's current intention is to prolong the war as much as possible, simply because he knows that the minute the war ends, all hell will break loose in the streets of Israel and you will be overthrown and not be elected ever. So whether it is 
from his vindiction of Yoni's death or a psychological analysis of being a psychopath and an narcissistic person. I'm not saying that. Professor of psychiatry say that. I do not know. I'm not an expert. But the situation is grave as long as this government governs. And that's what takes me and my brother and hundreds of thousands of Israeli out. And it started roaming up or ramping up in the last month or so. And, and my prediction is that as soon as war subsides a little bit and some of the military were pulled out of Gaza, uh, more people will go and the rage will increase. And, you know, we're a democracy. But a democracy does not mean that an elected government can ruin the foundations of the democracy. And that's what happened. And so what is the answer? Is it time then to negotiate? I'm not a political figure and I'm not a policymaker, but my two cents or two pennies, if you say, is that first and foremost, you need to have a trusted government and a trusted leader. And then, yes, negotiate, release the 136 and bring them back safe, you know, as many of them alive as possible, and then work with Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and the United States and the UK and Germany on a temporary solution for a temporary time, but one that has at least one clause to my taste, and that no military force can be close to the border of Israel anymore, not in Gaza and not in Lebanon. That should be a statement or our red line. Dealing with Hamas and Hezbollah, we can do later. I was actually, I was against such negotiations at the outset, as I said before, because I thought the army can do uh, much more in a shorter time. Since I have a couple of friends that are fighting now in Khanunis, I know what's going on there. The complication of warfare underneath Khanunis and Gaza is such that not no Entebbe operation or no 136 Entebbe operations is viable. And hence, truth needs to be told, David. It's either continuing fighting in Gaza for months and months and months and sacrificing the 136 with a government that does not have the support and belief and trust of the people of Israel. The IDF claims that we're losing points because policymakers do not state what's the next phase and what's the next stage for Israel. I'm not saying that. The IDF is saying that. So it's either do that or overthrow this government overnight. We have in our democratic system uh, a lawful ability to do that overnight without even re-elections. I don't know that the English term for that, but it's um, a vote of inconfidence. But, it, but it's not 
calling for new government, but it's appointing immediately. You need 61 votes, and then you immediately appoint an alternate government. And to me, that would be the best situation for the hostages, for the IDF, and for the situation. Meaning, Olaf the government, appointing a temporary government led by whomever, except Mr. Netanyahu, that will renegotiate the deals for the list of the 136, pin down a date for future elections in three months' time, six months' time, propose a new constitution, or at least basic foundations for a constitution for Israel. I'm sure you know that we don't have a constitution, so we need to address that as well, and go for elections in three to six months' time on the basis of a new democratic, a new legal, a new economical, and a new social systems. All of these needs mending even before the Black Saturday. That's what we protested for before the Black Saturday, certainly following the Black Saturday. So we are not against a judicial reform. We are against the judicial reform that Mr. Levine posted. And again, Bibi is a master of using fake news and, and, and sending one into the throat of another. He, he, he thrives on that for the last 15 years. We need to put a stop to that. And we need to realign the people of Israel back to the basics of what is Zionism, what is Judaism, what is moral. Not that in 1976 everything was good. It was not. But at least the moral of the leadership was at the right place. Today, the moral of the leadership is in their pockets and in their seats. So we need to remove that. Benny Davidson there, one of the Entebbe hostages with his memory of his experience and thoughts on the current conflict. Well, that brings an end to this week's episode of Israel's War on Terror. You can search for more installments wherever you typically get your podcasts. Please let us know in the comments if you've any issues you'd like us to tackle, and we'll do our best to take them on in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.